Good evening and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy event at the London School of Economics. Uh, for those of you who don't know, and I hope most of you do know by now, uh, the Forum is an educational charity and we aim to bring philosophy to a wider audience. And you can read a bit more about what we do in our, our programme for the autumn on our website. So tonight's event is called Thinking in Public. Philosophy, Politics and the Public. <laughs> and this evening we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Forum. And we're bringing together three eminent philosophers to consider what it means to do philosophy in public, in the past, in the present and in the future. Thanks. So we have three speakers. Our first speaker will be Catherine Odar who is the chair and co-founder of the Forum for European Philosophy, and she's visiting fellow in philosophy at the LSE. Our second speaker is François Nudelmann, who is currently professor of philosophy at the European Graduate School and at Paris 8. And our final speaker is Geoffrey Bennington, who is Asa G. Candler Professor of Modern French Thought at Emory University. So the format of the event is that each speaker will have about 10 minutes to address the subject of public philosophy. And this should leave us plenty of time for discussion and questions afterwards. So I'd like to hand over to our first speaker, who's Catherine Odar. Thank you. Thank you, Daniela. Okay, so it's quite impressive to have been in action for 20 years. Um, when we started, I think everybody was laughing at us, saying, philosophy in London, uh, you're joking, I mean, nobody will come or be interested. And uh, it was a mad endeavor, really. And uh, when we started in 90, 1996, philosophy was still not well regarded, to say the least, and uh, was seen as an elitist discipline. Uh, as it is only taught in university, mostly in universities. Um, whereas in Europe, I mean, most of continental Europe, philosophy is taught in the secondary system, and uh, so people have a wider of familiarity with the great philosophers or the idea of philosophy, whereas here it's different. So, and also because of the British skepticism towards abstract ideas, uh, it was seen as possibly not very useful. So, so a few friends gathered together and uh, convinced that it was an important thing to do. And uh, finally, finally, it became uh, quite a success story, I must say, because now we have a wide audience coming every week to our uh, lectures or debates. And, uh, and also, at the time, I mean, uh, when we started in 96, we, I think we were the only ones. But immediately, the Society for European Philosophy was started, like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, you know, exactly, some, something similar. And then now you have a wide range of places where you can uh, discuss and think in public, I mean, not philosophy as such, but still, uh, you have philosophy bites on the radio, uh, Alain Botton's School of Life. Alain Botton was a very strong supporter of the forum at the start. 
and then he um, started his own um, concept. Intelligent Square, uh, the Institute of Ideas, and clubs such as Count's Cave, with uh, regular meetings. Um, there's the night uh, with philosophers at the French Institute. And uh, at the Hay Festival, nowadays, a philosophy, um, um, not a, a series of lectures, uh, how the light, the light gets in. And you have the Institute of Art and Ideas. So it has been a, really a complete change in the landscape. Also, universities have changed, and uh, they have started their impact uh, program or outreach programs, and uh, the, the sense that philosophy should, or academic disciplines at large, but philosophy also, should be part of the public culture has been really uh, making progress. And you have now, of course, a worldwide revolution with the MOOCs, and uh, TED Talks, etc., so all over the world. So this idea of opening up uh, the academic discipline to a wider public is taking really... Um, so we must have been doing something valuable that answered the needs and aspirations of the London public. I must say the London public has changed too, obviously, and uh, also further in the country, in Oxford, Liverpool, Dundee. Uh, we even had um, events in Glasgow, I remember. So we have touched really um, something. So I'll remind you of our overarching goal, what it means for us thinking of public, in public. To create a public understanding of philosophy modeled on the great European tradition of the Enlightenment, and to provide a space for thought-provoking discussion that is free and open to all interested, to reach an audience as wide as possible, students, academics, members of the general public of all, age, all ages interested, and engaging through philosophical discussion on a wide range of public issues. So I just want to uh, roughly uh, look at two questions. Um, why thinking of in public is good for philosophers and philosophy? And second question, why would thinking in public be good for the public? So these are my two questions. Then the first one. I think <laughs> there is a deep connection between philosophical thinking and the public sphere. You know, of course, because of the origins of um, what, I mean, uh, what philosophy means, and it meant really thinking in public, thinking in the, on the agora, on the public space, and we took the name, the forum, which is exactly the, this idea. So, to exist, philosophy Philosophizing or philosophy needs at least two things. Political conditions, democracy code, because the Greek democracy was not democracy as we understand it, but still there was enough freedom, enough basic freedoms for a certain portion of the population. 
and then an educated public. That's the, these are the two conditions. And what happened in the history of philosophy has been a, a move towards prof professionalization and the creation of specialities and uh, cutting off really the activity of thinking from the wider public since the 18th century. And even among philosophers, <laughs> we have, sorry, we are divided because our specialities don't always overlap. So we are really in a situation where I'm a political philosopher and I don't know enough about philosophy of mind, for instance, or about metaphysics, and I should, <coughs> but I can't because of the specialization, which is the burden of uh, academic disciplines. So, it, and it, it's a contradiction. It's really negating the very purpose of what philosophy is about, to reflect on a given body of knowledge, science, technology, laws, etc., or of norms and values, from a holistic perspective, from a human point of view. And this is no longer possible, of course. And the very concept of a university professor, as we all are, contradicts the Socratic ideal of philosophy. So there is a tension here, which is, of course, present in many disciplines, but I think for philosophers it's acute, it's more acute. So the Socratic ideal of philosophy as the search for truth and wisdom together uh, and a search for and by ordinary people, not experts, this, is lost with the, this has been lost with the professionalization of philosophy. So it's good to go back to our roots and to be able to go out and discuss what we are uh, thinking or working on with the wider public. So it's good for philosophers to go back to this uh, grounding, if you want, in the discussion, the open discussion with a wider public. But secondly, I think philosophy is connected to the idea of the public in a more epistemic sense, a Wittgensteinian sense. Thinking and reasoning can't be, um, can't be done as a... Uh, monological exercise, if you want. It needs interlocutors. There are no private language, no private reasons. Thinking is not simply meditating or ruminating. It's something else. And I think the myth we have of Descartes uh, being... Uh, isolated in his chamber during the winter of 1619 and discovering all of a sudden this uh, fundamental truth, cogito ergo sum, this is a bit of a myth because Descartes himself was at the center of a vast network of scientists, philosophers, theologians, etc., with whom he was very actively corresponding all the time, visiting each other, etc. So, um, Without all these public exchanges on a huge scale for the, for the, the time, uh, he would never have been able to write his meditations. I mean, the style of the meditation, of course, is a self-discovery, a self, 
uh, an extraordinary uh, voyage of self-discovery. But still, the experience underneath is grounded in the public sphere of the time, which was this exchange of letters all over Europe. So I think philosophy has to be engaged with the public sphere because of its nature, and something very important would be lost if this disappears. And what is at stake is um, solipsism, in the case of Descartes, or the bubble mentality. And I was reading The, the Independent this morning with a very <laughs> interesting description. Um, the bubble mentality, I know, was put in, uh, said the writer, uh, was put into the mouth of one of the characters in Lucy Preble's smash hit, smash hit play of 2009, Enron, describing the financial markets, the character said, there is a strange thing that goes on inside a bubble. It's hard to describe. People who are in it can't see outside of it. Don't believe there is an outside. And that's the danger of the uh, closet or the ivory tower. So I think... Uh, Engaging with the public sphere is essential for philosophers. And third, of course, there's the political dimension that when you are engaged is in critical thinking, you need basic freedoms, you need a context of uh, freedom of expression, trust, truthfulness, which is incompatible with any um, domination of one dominant creed or way of thinking. So, in that sense, philosophy and a free public sphere are on the same boat. They are really deeply connected. So that's why I would say philosophy needs the public, and it's a good move that present-day universities are understanding that and opening up uh, with their outreach programs and the rest on the internet. Now, is thinking in public beneficial for the public? It is not obvious. And uh, I think it depends on the style, the kind of philosophy we are talking about. Do you aim at dialogue or at a performance? Derrida or Badiou, to name a few, in public are very good performers. I mean, we're very good performers. Is it a good thing? What would be the criteria? What, what is the public searching in uh, this uh, contact with philosophers and philosophical ideas? One answer, and I think it's a worthwhile one, is pleasure. There is a great pleasure in, uh, li like, when you listen to music or go to a play, there is a great pleasure in the skill of the speaker, mind the mastery of the plot, the way the argument develops, the learned references, the linguistic skills, the showmanship even, and the dexterity with etymologies and subtle distinctions, usually in Greek or German. Uh, one famous example is the, the use of the German verb aufheben in Hegel, and that 
opens up lots of possibilities, um, etc. So there are lots of examples, and there is a joy, there is a pleasure with the language, with the, the use of language, which is probably worthwhile. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, dictionary of the intraducible, all the terms which can't translate from one language to the other. And uh, this dictionary was first published in French, and then it has been translated in English. And it's a joy in a way, I mean, because it opens up lots of possibilities. Uh, it's playful in a way, it's serious in another. So I think there's a great satisfaction when you listen to a very stimulating or original lecture and uh, a valuable pleasure and benefit for the public, that's for sure. Another answer would be, of course, educational. The fact that philosophical questioning starts developing in you uh, abilities or skills you possibly didn't know you had to start with, etc. So, uh, in the case of Michael Sanders' lectures, I don't know if you have uh, listened to his lectures on justice, on, on his book, What Money Can't Buy, uh, he has such a dexterity as a teacher to uh, uh, follow Socrates' maiotic. That's the art of uh, making people discover what they already were thinking without knowing they were thinking it. And it's excellent. It's a really uh, a process which he has mastered, solving problems through discussion, through public discussion with others, is liberating, <coughs> exhilarating. And uh, John Stuart Mill talked of the individual as a developing process which needs stimulation, pluralism, a variety of, of situations, and that's exactly what's happening in uh, this um, experience of thinking in public. For the public, the stimulation is absolutely crucial, <coughs> but it's the same when you look at philosophy for children. It has proved to be a remarkable tool for development and uh, as long as it is based on dialogue, stimulation, it is Socratic in its inspiration. So I think the value of philosophy for the public is quite important. But the most common argument would be, and it's true especially in France, would be the political awareness that philosophy should bring about. That critical thinking, thinking in public, discussing, um, being um, um, in contact with new ideas, different ideas, this should bring about better citizens. So making citizens out of passive subjects or listeners, and uh, this is really uh, quite a claim. And I must say, uh, I'm of two minds on that. Probably we will disagree on that. Um, can this benefit, this political awareness, be generalized? It depends on the historical context and the social context. Philosophy seminars in Prague in 1980 were true acts of resistance. When people came 
after nights spent doing uh, menial jobs. And they came to the philosophy seminar to be inspired and to be still in touch with ideas. This was an act of resistance against the regime and were punished as, as such. But Marxist-Leninist philosophy was taught in the schools and it was a public um, uh, way of thinking in, in that sense that uh, there were discussions, of course, etc. So it's really tricky. So, and you have the context where philosopher, philosophers can become maître à penser. Uh, so there is this danger of uh, the fascination for rhetorics and domination, in a way. So, I think I will leave it here. The political benefit would be wonderful if we could transform political debates in something a bit more serious and more deeply um, reflect, I mean, reflective than it's the case. But unfortunately, uh, the situation, the present situation is pretty depressive. So, and philosophy can have probably no influence on the political debate the way it is at the moment. But at the same time, philosophers have a responsibility in, as part of the public culture. And I will end with that. Uh, what we have done at the forum is, I think, typical of people getting organized, bottom-up, and deciding that they wanted to do something and to add to the situation, to change the situation of the public culture, to improve it, if possible. And there should be indirect consequences for the, the level of the political debate, probably, but it's indirect, it's nothing is straightforward. So uh, I will conclude with that. I mean, a uh, half-hearted <laughs> hope that uh, philosophy has a responsibility in shaping a better political culture. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Francois Nudelman. Thank you very much, Catherine, and Beth and Daniel for this invitation. I'm very glad to celebrate the 20 years of the Forum for European Philosophy. I hope that European is still an attractive word. Uh, and tonight, the topic uh, is thinking in public. So I would say that even if philosophy has not the monopoly of thought, I would like to stress its role in the public sphere, especially during the 30 last years. The status and the role of philosophy have indeed changed a lot, especially in France, aside its academic tradition. I will talk about the situation of France, not in a nationalist way, but just because I just want to talk about what I know. Uh, and I hope that there are many connections with the, the other uh, countries. The word itself, philosophy, got an amazing extension through its public uses. So first of all, before discussing about thinking in public, we should know what, are, what we are talking about. We could refer to many practices and many discourses uh, named philosophy, but which have nothing in common. For example, 
a comment about Kant's cosmopolitanism at the Modern School of Economics, and organized discussion at the Nuit Debout. Uh, you know, Nuit Debout uh, in, the, in France, in Paris, this uh, movement, Place de la République, like uh, Occupy Wall Street or the Ignignados in Madrid, uh, but also a radio program on the moral consequences of biotechnologies and individual and solitary meditation. All these activities involve the notion of philosophy, but perhaps it's just a family resemblance that connects, that connects these different activities. The expression thinking in public allows to build a convenient border between, on the one hand, specialized private academic philosophy, and on the other hand, a public open and multiform philosophy. But this opposition, this distinction, is based on implicit antithesis between truth and opinion, reenacting ancient distinctions like logos versus doxa, authority versus demagoguery, sage versus sophist. However, these oppositions remain perhaps illusory because what is at stake here is not only the possibility for philosophy to become popular, but the transformations of philosophy itself. First, let's define the different public fields and places where the name of philosophy is involved or invoked. Regarding the commitment of philosophy in the public debates, we can observe since the, the 80s the decline of a master figure, this of the intellectual, which was incarnated by Sartre from 1945. Sartre was the model of the public philosopher outside the university. He didn't teach, but he involves his philosophy among the public spaces, both in the famous Parisian café, like Saint-Germain-des-Prés, after the war, but also uh, just in front of the factory of Boulogne-Vignancourt, where he spoke to workers, and also traveling around the world in order to promote his thoughts and to get inspiration from his encounters. Even if there are still philosophers today writing petitions in newspapers or trying to play a role in social movements, like those speaking at Occupy Wall Street, I could quote many, or at Nuit Debout, this attitude became a sort of theatrical part without any effect. Such philosophers are no longer the public loudspeakers of revolutionary movements. Today, well, I will quote someone. <laughs> uh, someone like Badiou seems to reincarnate the Sartrean figure. He symbolizes the master voice, especially the French master's voice, speaking for the whole world about the truth of communism. But more his discourse is successful in the academy, less powerful it is in the political and public sphere. More generally, the public role of philosophers 
announcing the future, happiness or apocalypse. This world fades away, even if there are still actors to play this kind of part. The decline of philosopher pastors or prophetic philosophy has left an empty place that is occupied now by experts and pedagogues who explain rather they criticize the world. There is a challenge between these two philosophical parts in the public sphere, the prophet and the expert. Public philosophy is a response to, social, to a social demand. The amazing success of private or public institutions proposing philosophy courses suggests a new status, a new nature of philosophy. Of course, we should be careful with the notion of public that supposes a neutral subject. Although only certain categories of people are involved in the so-called demand for philosophy, depending on social class, gender, ethnicity. Anyway, the large public participating, participating in philosophical activities is asking for a kind of knowledge, more than a critical discourse. Usually named in France, Université Populaire, and I don't know how to translate, I asked Catherine, but perhaps it's open, open university, but it's very famous in France, Université Populaire, there are so many Université Populaire in different countries, in different cities of France now. Uh, hundreds of institutions propose to unselected people and without any goal of uh, degree and without any interest for obtaining a diploma to get access to philosophical works or topics. In France, the first, the first institution that tried to invent an alternative model against or aside traditional universities uh, was the University of Vincennes, created in 1969, and where Deleuze, Foucault, Lyotard, Lacan, uh, Rancière, and so on, taught. And later, the Collège International de Philosophie, created by Jacques Derrida, among others, in 1983. Opening, opening philosophy to a non-qualified audience was not only a matter of vulgarization, but it aims to change philosophy itself and to open it to its others, to the outside, to the margins. However, the popular, the popular university or the open universities today, even if they also welcome a non-qualified audience and don't deliver any diploma, this kind of alternative university they don't usually question the philosophy itself. Their inspiration is less the alternative universities like the Collège International of Philosophy than the Café Philo that got an uh, important success in the 90s. They look like pseudo-academies for an open public space and don't intend to explore the margins of philosophy. It means that even the popular or the open universities 
follow this evolution of philosophy towards a public role. Thus, we could say that thinking in public is, ra is rather an answer to a social demand than a way of doubting or and questioning. It doesn't aim to rethink or reshape the public space, but it feels the need for already established thoughts. According to this kind of normalization, another success of philosophy today is demonstrated by the number of medias that write and talk about it. There is even in France, a monthly and very popular magazine called Philo Magazine, and many newspapers also regularly organize special issues about thinkers like Plato, Hobbes, and, or Nietzsche. Portraits of philosophers, pedagogic booklets, paperback editions became a real business in the media, in the name of philosophy. But once again, philosophy is seen through this public sphere as a knowledge more than a practice. If I may refer to my own experience as a producer uh, at the French National Radio, let me say that at the very beginning of my radio show, I organized weekly philosophical discussions of one, one hour and a half. But 10 years later, the staff asked me to plan daily 10 minutes show just for introducing books. France Culture, little by little, got rid of all philosophical debates and imposed a unique show, so-called Les Chemins de la Connaissance, The Path of Knowledge. The debates today about philosophy and its use in the public space are therefore completely different from the debates of the 80s and the 90s, when philosophers tried to rethink the status and the place of philosophy in societies, constantly questioning its nature, and its roles. This questioning remains still alive, perhaps, in some practice of philosophy inside other institutions, uh, like hospital, psychiatric, psychiatric hospitals or prisons, where so-called philosophical workshops are uh, organized. They are perhaps the only legacy of the 70s coming from the anti-psychiatry with the thinker like uh, Kling and Cooper and from the Foucault, Foucault's activism about prison. In these groups, the philosophical voice is multiple. It's a practice instead of being the transmission of a knowledge coming from a master. The aim of these groups of philosophy is to allow each patient or each prisoner to think of oneself and to improve one's subjectivity. Philosophy is then a practice of elucidation and of reconstruction, different from psychology. Its nature remains ambiguous, and the so-called, today, philotherapy, it's a new word, but that's a appears in the media, philotherapy, has to find its specific way aside the psychotherapy. But it also means that the status of philosophy has changed more generally and beyond these particular activities in prison and in psychiatric, psychiatric hospital.
This is the other transformation of philosophy through its public, public uses. And that's uh, I would like to point out shortly to end this uh, presentation. Coming back to its signification as a wisdom, philosophy became a way of life. We could, of course, dismiss this confusion today in the media between philosophy and meditation, yoga, psychology, and so on. But the term came inside the philosophy itself, thanks to the rehabilitation, the re-evaluation of life and the comeback to ancient Greek philosophers. Pierre Hadot inspired this shift by explaining that even the most complicated theories in ancient Greece were thought for the public space and for the ordinary life. Philosophy is, first of all, a practice and not a theory. Foucault, at the end of his life, in his last works, supported this argument, this idea of philosophy, and worked about the care of the self. His last seminar, The Courage of Truth, and courage is an unusual word in his uh, philosophy. The Courage of Truth described the ancient figures of philosophers who practiced philosophy as an art of life. The sage, the Stoics, and Socrates became the paragon of philosophy as a practice of the self. The philosophy thus has to find its own way aside other practices and discourses. But it means that it has not completely been reduced to a knowledge, or that the philosophical knowledge could become also a way of life. Today, at least in France, the word philosophy is everywhere. It is used to promote many institutions, products, and activities. Its extension is perhaps the sign of its dilution and its disappearance. And we could say the more the philosophy is named, the less it exists. But it also means that philosophy becomes, could become a practice and that it can still modify public space in unpredictable ways. Thank you. I'd like to welcome our final speaker, Jeffrey Bennington. Thank you. Um, I come before you with several major disadvantages. I hope you'll be sympathetic about one is that I have transatlantic second day jet lag, which is a pleasant experience I'm sure many of you will have experienced. Um, another is that I have um, new glasses, which I think you'll agree are fairly fetching, but they don't seem yet to do quite what glasses are supposed to do. So as I squint at my uh, screen where I have a few notes, I didn't write a presentation, I thought I'd try thinking in public. Um, I hope you'll forgive me if I, due to these various disadvantages, uh, there's another much bigger one to come. 
um, occasionally hesitate or stumble or seem uncertain as to, as to what I might be trying to say. Um, the, the biggest disadvantage, of course, is that um, even though I haven't now lived here for many years, I am, as you hear from my accent, English. And being English, I think, is a real disadvantage when it comes to thinking in public and even um, thinking about thinking in public. I'm sure you'll agree that with however, however slight uh, a French accent, mercifully not a Slovenian one, um, these, these issues sound, um, sound much better. And I have to say that as a good um, Englishman, or a well-bred perhaps Englishman, I find there's a little edge of impropriety attached to the very thought of thinking in public. <laughs> Various other things one might prefer not to do in public that perhaps in other places are done in public more readily than they are by the English. I think thinking has a little of that uh, about it too, so I do feel also a tiny bit inhibited in trying to do that now. I was comforted in thinking about that and my discomfort about it though by the thought that it's not as if the opposition between thinking in private and thinking in public could ever really be an opposition or two exclusive terms, if only because of um, the fact of language. This is something that um, Catherine was saying. Basically, every, everything I want to say was already said, um, which is another disadvantage um, I hope you'll be sympathetic about. But no private language, as Catherine said, um, no code that is structurally secret, as Derrida uh, said in a slightly different version of the same argument, means that at least in principle, even if it takes getting over some inhibitions, at least in principle, insofar as it's bound up with language, thinking cannot be not public in a radical sense. There, there is an element of publicity, at least potentially speaking, in the very fact of thinking itself, um, at, at least in the forms that are close to what we call um, philosophy. Oh, that's another disadvantage I completely forgot. I'm not actually a philosopher. I have no philosophical training, total, total autodidact in that regard. So um, that's something else I hope you'll, um, as they say on the other side, cut me some slack um, about... So thinking is always already on its way to becoming public in some way, but I do think that, again, as Catherine was mentioning, there have been some pretty profound um, transformations of what public might mean, what public space might mean. One incongruous thought I had as I was thinking about this, again mentioned by Catherine, was Descartes supposedly in his uh, stove... Um, doing his meditation and I wondered what would have happened if he were live tweeting it as it happened. I believe live tweeting is happening as we, uh, as we speak. I didn't know that when I was thinking about Descartes. And then I thought even better, suppose there were live coverage. Suppose Descartes were covered almost as a sporting event. Descartes meditating would be given some kind of live coverage and that would give a slightly different slant perhaps to, to what was going on as he did his 
as he did his thinking. And to that extent, this event where we um, sometimes, um, by crossing large distances in expensive and um, polluting means of transport, in order to be in the same room to talk in public, is redolent still of a slightly older model of what public might mean. So I think one of the things we perhaps would like to talk about or would need to talk about is the fairly radical transformation of what public means and how it relates to what we think of as private, um, brought about by those so-called um, new technologies. doesn't mean that I think just because thinking is always already on its way to being public that this is univocally um, a, a good or straightforward thing to wish for it. Obviously, the fact of language makes thinking tendentially public, but the more public thinking gets in some ways, I think this was also said or at least implied, the less thoughtful it can also become. So thinking is in attention, I think, doesn't mean it's retreating to an old-fashioned sense of an enclosed individual private consciousness or anything like that, but it's intention with its own becoming public in a way that is itself interesting and not certainly just a negative, um, negative thing. Obvious signs of this, some of the symptoms that uh, Francois was mentioning about uh, the, the media, um, the relationship that philosophy or thinking can have to the media, uh, everybody knows that this is not a straightforward or straightforwardly positive um, but philosophy on television is not necessarily simply a good, a good thing. Um, let me just say a couple of things about traditional ways in which some of these relations have been thought. Um, obviously, again, uh, this was mentioned by François, the, 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 the standard way with which many of us grew up, I think, thinking about these issues was via the figure of the intellectual. The intellectual was a way of thinking about thinking in public or representing um, thinking in public, perhaps mostly in French. Perhaps the intellectual in a significant sense is French in a way that no other national tradition quite matches, not just Sartre, though saliently Sartre in recent times, but before him Zola, before him Voltaire. Uh, Voltaire in a certain sense in the 18th century is already an intellectual. And here I'd just like to mention a text that had a big influence on my own way of thinking about these things. I'm not sure this has ever been translated into English. It's a little piece that Jean-François Lyotard, who is mentioned as one of the founding figures of the Experimental University of Vincennes, a piece that he wrote for Le Monde, the newspaper Le Monde, in 1983. You may remember the socialists had come to power in 1981, and after a couple of years in power, they were um, disgruntled that the intellectuals on whom they felt they could um, rely for support were not speaking out in their favor loud enough. And in response to this, Lyotard wrote a little piece called Tombeau de l'Intellectuel, The Intellectual's Tomb. And he's very clear he means this also as a celebratory monument. It's not simply declaring the intellectual dead, it's declaring the intellectual dead and also in some sense celebrating what the intellectual was that the Lyotard thinks is over. And he thinks it's over for one simple, a few more reasons, but one simple and main reason is that in his view the intellectual needed to identify and identify with a universal or potentially universalizable subject in order to pronounce on the meaning 
of the world in an essentially totalizing way. The intellectual knew who was the um, potentially universal subject whose voice the intellectual could become and more or less sternly call the rest of us back to our responsibilities, political and ethical responsibilities, with respect to that subject and with respect to making that subject real. Lyotard thinks that's all gone, that that's um, completely dissipated the reasons we could discuss in terms of the causal relationships, but that that model is no longer um, is no longer valid. It's very tempting, of course, to be nostalgic for the days of the good old intellectual. Um, I think many of us probably have felt that temptation. Um, one place that I'm tempted to look to put a little more pressure on that, quite apart from what Lyotard says in this really wonderful little newspaper piece is indeed in some of the same lectures that Francois mentioned from Foucault. Uh, Foucault at the end of his life was developing in the context that Francois recalled of what's become I think a very influential concept of uh, paresia, of a certain kind of truth-telling, a kind of telling truth to power positioning the philosopher within the context of a sort of form of life as the one who, in a recalcitrant way, tells truth to power. And this is bound up with a whole um, iconology around Foucault that one could analyze in its own terms, which is to do with that image, not just of Foucault looking very formidable and very bald before it became fashionable, but also holding a megaphone. And many, many images of Foucault addressing crowds through a megaphone or otherwise holding a megaphone. And the megaphone has a kind of iconological virtue in this story, I think, to the extent that the recent republication of the English edition of the Archaeology of Knowledge, way before any of this stuff in Foucault, has on its cover an image not of Foucault at all, but just of the megaphone. Not need Foucault, just, just the megaphone. Um, I think that this concept of parisia is a lot of trouble. Um, I think it uh, reinstates a kind of version of the intellectual. I think it depends on the thought that that intellectual can step back from the political sphere into a space that is immune from um, what it then tends to deride in the political sphere as rhetoric and sophistry or spin if you like, I think it tends to give rise to um, a moralistic, tendentially self-satisfied uh, moralism of which I'm very suspicious and which I've tried recently to contest by talking about what I call the politics of politics, about which I'll just say a word and then I'll end. The thought about what I call the politics of politics is a really simple one. It's that we often use idioms that begin the politics of about many other kinds of activities. So we often talk about the politics of sport or the politics of art or the politics of the university. And the assumption when we do that is that this is um, a secondary and potentially troublesome dimension of activities that really are supposed to be doing something else. So when we talk about the politics of the university, our assumption usually, I think, is that that's not what we should be doing with our time in the university. We should be doing our university thing, 
not the politics of it, thing, which is getting in our way, wasting our time, and so on. Similarly, probably with politics of sport, sport's not about politics, it's about sport, the politics of art, so on and so forth. Um, the temptation to think in that way, I think, is very strong in the case of politics, where if you double up the expression and talk about the politics of politics, I think many people think it's possible to separate out the true bit, that would be the second occurrence of politics in that expression, the place that's elsewhere taken by university art, sport, in those other idioms. And to think that the first part, the politics of it, the politicking of it, if you like, the politique politicienne, as they say in um, Paris, is an inessential, rather disreputable, sophistical, rhetorical thing. My suggestion is there is no such separation to be made, that there is no politics without the politics of politics, that politics is inseparable from its more disreputable aspects. And that's something that philosophers have had a great deal of trouble accepting. And in doing political philosophy, many of them have tried to get that politics out of politics in the name of something that sounds grander and nobler and so on. I don't think there's any getting rid of it and that one way of thinking in public is to figure out how to um, act in that circumstance. Thank you. Thank you. Now I want to sneak in one or two questions before I open it to the floor. Um, so given that you seem to agree that thinking in private is impossible in some sense, why do you think philosophers remain so resistant to thinking in public in this particular sense? Why do you think so many philosophers still want to restrict philosophy to the academy? What is the, the root of that resistance? Well, it's the difference between the wider public and the um, audience of your colleagues or students. I mean, that's really... It's always public, but it's a difference in well, nature is, is of the public. Is there a particular public. fear? What do you think is the philosopher's fear? Um, I mean, Jeff, you mentioned this sense of impropriety and, and of expressing oh, that's oneself. A, that's just a Brit thing. Fear. I'm not sure about fear. Um, but there is some resistance, I think, mm. because, um, as with many activities, it's easier to talk a kind of jargon um, which is understood or at least somewhat understood or at least recognized and given some kind of recognition. Um, thinking in public or philosophizing in public, I think, often in an interesting but often, I think, pretty uncomfortable way for philosophers, even though I'm not one, um, gets back to some really basic questions which of course are unanswerable. We can't answer these questions. So um, it's easier to talk about more technical issues where we can at least disagree on points that perhaps will allow for some resolution or decision. Um, the terms, I actually made a note, I didn't read them out, but I made a note of the terms that were associated with this event in the publicity materials, I think. So words, just simple words like thinking, philosophy, politics, public, project, future. All of these are impossible. They're, they're, they're really hard. It's really hard to know what to say about any of those things. Um, so talking about it, as it were, from the ground up, if that's what we yeah. mean by the wider public, puts all sorts of difficulties and burdens on people. And many philosophers aren't very good at that. 
And is that a problem that is specific to philosophy, do you think? Uh, do you think other academic scientists of certain sorts find it easier to address a, a wider public than philosophy? I wouldn't say there is a uniform resistance to public uh, intervention because if, you, if, we, if we come back to, to ancient Greece, you can see many different kind of uh, many different philosophers. Socrates who was constantly uh, speaking in public, teaching, and uh, well, it was uh, kind of collective intellectual. Of course, I know it's an anachronism to say that, but. Uh, he was never, he, he never stayed alone, thinking alone, uh, in private uh, life. And even the notion of private and public, as Geoff immediately said, well, it's perhaps you know, a recent distinction that doesn't work, especially in the ancient Greece. There are also philosophers that, who didn't teach and didn't write anything. Just their way of life, you know. We don't know about, much about them because, of course, <laughs> we have no testimony. Uh, but we know that there were philosophers like that in ancient Greece. You know, and well, so you can see that uh, this kind of solitary, lonely, lonely thinkers, but also like uh, you know, uh, Socrates and Aristotle, you know. Uh, Thinking in public, so I'm not sure that we could say that there is a common resistance resistance to to the public uh, commitments of philosophy. I, I think we should add something, which is that uh, we are talking of an educate, educated public. I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, uh, since the 18th century, I mean, there, there was a public in Europe for philosophy and ideas. I mean, in the middle class, rising middle classes, educated people. I mean, that's a big, big change, I mean. And uh, so uh, we're not talking of a real huge gap between the audience of our students and the audience we have today, for instance. I mean, it's, uh, it's a continuous spectrum, yeah, I would say. Of course, there's this kind of myth, uh, you know, just uh, <laughs> the Descartes. Uh, alone, you know, that was funny to think that he could have tweeted something because, yes, that's kind of perhaps a cliche, you know, the, the thinker alone, you know, suddenly inspired by the, uh, this, uh, this divine idea. That's the way he described it. I yes. mean, I was yeah. looking at the text, and Descartes himself says that he was visited by. Kind of yes, he had these kind of dreams. Or, and yes, there was something. It's a kind uh, of mythology of uh, yeah. the history of philosophy in Europe. Yeah. Can I just add one more thing as well? Maybe two things. Uh, one is that my own experience, at any rate, of the activity of thinking is that it's often ahead of itself. Right? Mm. It's it's not. I'm not in control of what I'm thinking. If I'm thinking something, it's because I don't yet understand it. If I just understood it, always from the ground up, there would be no problem discussing it, as it were, immediately. But I think often thinking feels like a vulnerable activity because, and I think, I think this is demonstrable, I don't think it's even very controversial, as, as I'm thinking, I don't entirely understand what I think. So there's the, there's the embarrassment exposure moment where somebody from the audience says, so what exactly do you mean? I say, oh, I don't know. 
don't really know. Um, and then about the other disciplines, I, I think that that's a that's a complex story, right? Because in some ways, um, I think there is a kind of cultural tolerance of extremely complex jargon in many disciplines, and perhaps more so in the Anglo-American tradition than in the French, an intolerance of complex jargon in philosophy. So there's a, there's a presumption that philosophy really ought not to be um, technical. Um, and there's probably a sense that other disciplines can't help but be technical. And that's a, that's a, strange, um, that's a strange phenomenon, I think, as well. I think the problem is to also to know that uh, if thinking could be done alone, you, you know this sentence by Levinas, um, writing with all the all the open book among the all books are opened uh, for me when I'm trying to think, you know? and uh, you could find also this kind of uh, conception in Montaigne. Uh, Montaigne's work, thinking is always a discussion with the others. So perhaps the others are not, uh, you know, present, but they are, they are anyway, they are, they are And, and writing present. is the same. I mean, writing, writing and thinking are really connected activities. I mean, you are writing, addressing an imaginary public, and looking at all your books which are around you, and then talking to them and discussing with them. So it's... But I, just to add one thing, I, I do think that in that moment, writing and thinking, of course, have end up, that in that, in that moment where, if I can say in a pretentious kind of way, where the, the, the event of thinking happens, I'm in, in relation to others, but I'm not yet in a position to explain, discuss, defend. It's, it's a more exposed... Um, Experience, perhaps a bit more. But then, as I say, I'm not a trained philosopher. A bit more like um, like a poetic moment or a creative moment in that in that sense, where um, I'm sure everybody's had that experience, at least in adolescence, of, of trying to write poetry and mostly failing, but occasionally seeing something on the page that came from somewhere that I don't completely understand. And you know, maybe I could sentimentally call it inspiration or something, but some, something happened that I, I I don't really know what it is, um, and it didn't come from any depth of mine, nor did it come explicitly from a a reasoned dialogue with the other. It came, and I'm somewhat responsible for it, but I'm not yet in any position whatsoever to defend it. That's the practice you mentioned. Yes, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, I really agree with your contrast between the practice and a given the result, the knowledge. I mean, quote. I mean, so philosophy is not about knowledge. I mean, definitely not. Or, or, or in a very specific sense. Or maybe you disagree with that. I mean. <laughs> okay. Should we take some questions from the audience? Stand the front row. Uh, yeah, it works. Um, so thank you very much. So you talked about um, Hellenic uh, times, and so one person, one political theorist who regenerated Hellenic thought was Hannah Arendt, and she talked about how the, the, the public realm is inherently political. 
how when we are in the public space, we express reason, we are free and equal, and we are truly political only when we are uh, public. And so the idea that, and it's the idea that political and the public are, you know, a bit, they come together. And you're, you're all either specialists or familiar in the sense that you're French, uh, of French theory and continental theory. And continental theory has to do a lot with the idea of reason. And something which I, found, I find very uh, troubling is the, um, the, the kind of collapsing of reason within public political thought um, expression in politics. And we can see that with Trump, with, I think, the non-reason-based arguments of both sides with regards to the, the um, uh, referendum. On both sides, they're using very, I think, non-cogent arguments. And so, how, what is your take? How can we explain the reasons of the um, lack of reason in public political expression nowadays? Well, you say, you say nowadays, um, maybe, maybe it's worse, maybe it's worse. Um, one, one, thing that, one thing that Arendt, I don't know Hannah Arendt's work very well, but one thing that she says for which she is very um, vigorously and even viciously criticized by Badiou is that Arendt is fairly firm on the sense that the political space is a space of doxa. It's where opinions are debated. It's not a space of truth. Um, Badiou thinks it is, of course, about truth. Uh, Arendt thinks it's about doxa. And in the realm of doxa, which brings in with it all of those elements I mentioned, rhetoric, sophistry, all of those things, reason, reason is in a vulnerable position, right? It, it doesn't mean there's any reasoning. It doesn't mean there's no reasoning. It doesn't mean there's no rationality. But it does mean that, and I think I would agree with Arendt about this, that there's something intrinsic about politics which is not entirely rational in the sense of rationalism at any rate. If there were, you could hand it over to experts, right? As, in fact, is increasingly the case under so-called neoliberalism. You just put economists or other ex so-called experts in. They know what's best. It's got a certain kind of rationality to it. But that's not the rationality of politics in anything like the traditional sense or the sense that I think many of us are still very attached to. But once it's not rationalizable through and through, then what I call the politics of politics emerges as a possibility, and I think one that could never be eradicated. So the possibility of a Trump, uh, horrendous though that is to many of us, is, is given with the political sphere from the start. And the issue then is negotiating with that possibility and finding ways other than what I think of as the moralistic retreat, which is the finger wagging, it's not, that's not nice, that's not good, it's not okay, which of course many of us also feel. But the, the trick would be to find ways to engage on that doxal terrain um, in a way that is not giving up on reason and reasons, but it's, neither is it a purely rationalistic claim to be able to make knowledge-based or truth-based Decision. Yes, Habermas has a good way to describe the situation. I mean, there is the vertical relationship in politics, which is about power, the conquest of power, and anything goes. I mean, you can see it <laughs> happening at the moment. And there is the horizontal 
relationship. Of, and that's what I mentioned. I mean, people getting together to try to do something about the situation. And this is the um, level of association, the civil society. And it exists. It's central in politics. But it's hidden by this vertical uh, line, if you want. So you have the two dimensions, and they fight each other, definitely. And uh, I'm not sure about the power of the horizontal level, I mean, but that's, that's, that's exactly the, the situation we are in. I mean, people are getting together, they are doing fantastic things as citizens, I mean, as a part of the civil society to change, to answer questions and to um, make changes. But at the same time, you have this feature of democracy, which is the vertical the conquest of power and the fact that every five years you have this contest and then people are silenced. There's nothing they can do. So, yeah. So philosophy has a role to play at the horizontal level, definitely. I mean, and, and it shows. It happens. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, the fact that philosophy has a, a role to play to impose a kind of rationality and philosophers have been identified to this uh, rationality from the beginning with the Plato, the Logos, and the, the Descartes, uh, uh, of course, the discourse of the method. Uh, but we must be aware that also this rationing, this search uh, of, for uh, rationality could be itself mm. irrational. Absolutely. Rationality could be considered as madness. Uh, and uh, you know also the critics by uh, uh, Adorno and uh, Horkheimer about the modern rationality and uh, its uh, terrible consequences uh, in, the, in the 20th century. So, of course, I totally agree with you that the fact that, especially regarding this uh, crazy uh, arguments and uh, lies in the public sphere, or, well, the campaign in the United States, uh, of course, the role uh, the philosophy could play is to, of course, to to go back to some rational arguments, but at the same time, uh, being aware that rationality could perhaps be also dangerous sometimes uh, in a systematic uh, use. Yes, but I mean we don't need to talk about rationality. We we need to talk about giving reasons. Sure. Giving, presenting reasons to each other. That's, that's all is needed. I mean, rationality is maybe too ambitious. Other questions? Yeah. Hi. Um, you were saying about um, the ideal or sort of necessary conditions for philosophy to thrive being um, freedom and education. How do you see the influence of the media with that, do you think it's a hindrance to both of those in terms of true freedom of thought and potentially uh, either complementing or detracting from education? Oh, thank you. That's a very good question because I have ideas about that. About that. Um, so um, I'm not anti-media. I mean, that's but I'm in favour of pluralism. And what is really not working at the moment is that we have the political discourse, the parties the political parties and their discourse on the one hand. You have the medias on the other, and you should have um, another dimension, which is really the voice of ordinary citizens. I mean, uh, 
worry of all this intoxication, all this propaganda, and what they know about um, their situation, their problems, etc. They should be able to express themselves, I mean, in various, um, on various stages. And it's lacking. I mean, it's a lack of a vibrant civil society, I mean, which is worrying. That's really um, the situation we are in. I mean, on the one hand, the voice of the political parties, which, I mean, you've seen how they uh, manage, I mean, to change uh, the information. On the other, you have the medias. They, uh, the, voice, the voice of the institution, of the establishment, is dismissed, whereas it should be listened to, critical, in a critical way, it should be listened to. So I think, uh, I, you know, in uh, 2002, in France, we had this very bad situation with Le Pen arriving in second place. I mean, it was a huge shock. And uh, my, my reaction at the moment, I wrote it to Le Monde, and to say, well, look, what we are lacking is really a voice for ordinary citizens, educated citizens, the, the wider public I mentioned from the start. I mean, and where are they? I mean, they can't express themselves and say, stop it. We don't want this, um, you know, this uh, type of information. We want something else. So pluralism is the key. That's, it's the main condition for uh, working civil sphere, public sphere. Um, my question was triggered by something that Jeff Bennington said in response to the previous question regarding uh, the place of doxa in the public sphere. Um, and I wonder whether you would agree with the following or you see that there is some value in the following. Um, Deleuze insists that philosophy is intrinsically paradoxical and he says it's only when someone stands up and says in the face of people saying we can all agree that or surely um, we all agree that that someone stands up and says well I don't uh, that thinking can begin and that is precisely for him the very beginning of philosophy and he says it takes a lot of ill will to be a philosopher and there's something that is intrinsically not necessarily benevolent and nice about the philosopher and I'm wondering whether that position of the philosopher isn't reflected in not necessarily the British being ill at ease in pub speaking in public as or thinking in public as a philosopher, but whether there shouldn't be this sort of uneasiness within the public sphere, and whether philosophers don't make things difficult for themselves within the public sphere, but in a way that I would insist is necessary and, and healthy, because that speaks to the critical power of philosophy also, and not to just a kind of perhaps benevolent pluralism that we might... Um, intrinsically want to embrace. Thanks. Yeah, no, that's, that's extremely helpful and says much more clearly and eloquently than I did. Something, I think, very close to what I was trying to suggest. I mean, the, the passage from that interruptive paradoxal or paradoxical moment to the critical moment is itself also quite a perilous one. It's not, it's not that 
it's not that paradox is ipso facto critical, right? We, we've still got a lot of issues that arise. But I absolutely agree that in the moment of its occurrence, that moment that um, you're describing following Deleuze as paradoxical, so it's, it's interruptive, it, it doesn't accept the general flow of discourse, it has a very antagonistic relationship to that pronoun we, first-person plural pronoun, which is a pronoun that's uh, widely appropriated by the intellectual in a, in, a, in a classical mode of the intellectual. So we, we humans, we all, we whatever it might be, even we philosophers, that pronoun is very treacherous and interrupting its, um, say, communitarian overtones does seem to me to be absolutely part of what's at stake in philosophy. But in the moment of its happening, we don't even yet know as to the critical virtue of it. But it would seem as though for there to be any critical virtue, we would have to allow for that moment where I think even the philosopher doesn't entirely understand what's being said. The philosopher is also breaking with the doxa in him or herself in saying this thing which in a sense is, is coming from, always coming from elsewhere as uh, Deleuze, Derrida um, événement de l'autre kind of um, moment I think which I, I do think is absolutely crucial for what you called the health we could probably talk about that more but of let's say the philosophical endeavour if it's even an endeavour but there's a tension here because this moment of Resistance, I would say, I mean, paradoxically, in that sense, I mean, that you disagree and you can't express exactly why you disagree, etc. Still, you want to talk to each other. I mean, you are suspicious of the communitarian tone, but still, uh, there is this um, will to exchange reason, to talk to each other, because if you... Um, diverge from that, then there are lots of dangers. I mean, and one danger which was, men I mean, at the center of Wittgenstein already, was delirium. When you start thinking on your own and, and you know, cultivating this distance, etc., from the community of the others, I mean, what happens? Or, if I may just Exactly. It's just just a word which I totally agree with what Javinton and Catherine said. But this kind of interruption is also a figure of resistance. But I think that in this case, philosophy has the privilege to be in this position of saying, well, I'm stand up, standing up and say no. Yeah. Everyone would exactly. do that. Yeah. Philosophy has no you know, exactly. privilege for that. But philosophy could perhaps invent another form of resistance. I mean, by, by changing the term of the resistance, um, Geoffrey was referring to Lyotard. For example, Lyotard in the Le Différent. Try to understand this 
where this kind of resistance, which is not because resistance, of course, you know, it's very glorious to be resistant, but perhaps it's too much. Resistance was an uh, uh, important movement during the war, and it's not easy to be resistant. So what does it mean, resistant? As a philosopher, it's perhaps to, to resist to the, what could be the doxa today, the, the terms, the, the antithesis used in the media, you know, that the fact that there is always this kind of dualism, you are uh, on the side of uh, independence or communitarian republic or uh, communitarism and, and, and so on. So I would say that uh, philosophy could perhaps find a kind of behavior, not a, disc and a discourse of Opposition, but the kind of behavior, like also uh, perhaps this movement, Nuit uh, Debout or Occupy Wall Street, you know, just stay aside. We could, we could say, well, what, they, they, didn't, they don't express anything, they don't have any reivindication, but it's also politics to make a step, a step aside and trying to say, well, I don't agree with this, uh, these terms of the opposition. And, uh, I think that philosophy could be involved in this shift, you know, always staying perhaps distant aside. But you have to articulate that. I mean, you can't just step, step aside and say, well, I disagree. You have to articulate that. The That's your responsibility as a philosopher. The practice itself is yeah. a arti kind of articulation, even if exactly. there is no <laughs> organized discourse. I, I believe in the practice. <laughs> well, practice informed by <laughs> judgment and thinking. I mean, no, no, no come on. That's, that's the tension. I mean, you, you, may, I mean, you use the term aristocratic, yes. I mean, uh, the, the tension between the ability to articulate and the ability to express the doxa. I mean, and, and not being above the doxa, but from, from within, being able to articulate uh, the conviction to consider judgments of the, of the people, of the public, yes. Yes. <laughs> we disagree. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more question. Oh. I think it's one at the back. Um, would you say that one of the main problems for thinking in public is the lack of trust oh. that people have in philosophical arguments yeah. when, they, um, when they move to the public, when they move to the political sphere. For example, um, Roger Scruton, someone who presents very interesting ideas, and I trust those ideas to have a measure of intellectual honesty. But if I didn't know that he, were, he was a philosopher, then I might suspect him of having un unseemly motives, of his ideas are coming from the wrong place. I suppose you could just say that in philosophy, you say things because you believe them, whereas in politics, you believe things because you have to say them. Um, so I, I would see the problem of thinking in public is um, people won't trust that you're thinking. They will yeah. just trust that you're saying things to achieve some end. Thanks. <laughs> that's, that's a nice point, but I, I, I think it also resonates with what was said earlier about the, the virtues of that interruptive moment, that 
the the very fact of um, this is where I too have a, have a I think I'm probably um, with Francois and perhaps not entirely with Catherine about the the exact way to understand the virtues of discussion and dialogue in the political but indeed in all other um, arenas um, and that the interruptive moment and the moment of disagreement and this is something Buta says very explicitly and, and made many people very angry with him which was in a sense a performance of the point he was trying to make is that um, agreement is a local and unstable state of discussion, but the point of discussion is dissensus. It's not, it's not consensus. Um, and this has quite radical ramifications, I think. So there the point would be that um, even insofar as you can tell that Scruton is pushing a line, as it were, we already know we've got a problem. Um, insofar as it's not doing that interruptive thing. The, the other thing about politics, you know, in politics, politicians say, believe things because they have to say them, is also a plight. It's not, it, it's not just that politicians are very bad people and some philosophers are bad people and others are less bad people. Um, the discourse of politics is very bizarre and twisted and inextricable, also for politicians. It's not, it's not something that a politician can simply escape from. That's, I think, the trap of the Paresiast, as Foucault describes him, that um, is one of the reasons, in fact, why, why Donald Trump is seen to be an attractive candidate by many Americans, because they think he's just telling the truth. Even when he's manifestly lying and telling untruths, the, the gesture, as it were, the, the rhetoric is, I'm not doing politics, this is not political correctness, this is not acceptable political discourse, this is the truth. And that very gesture, which is, of course, rhetorical and, and complex in all sorts of ways, has this um, political effect, which is extremely disturbing, I think, partly because it's not exactly easy to see how to reason it away. Uh, the, 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 the people who um, are susceptible to that discourse are not really very interested in reasons. <laughs> Let's take one more question then. The lady in red. Could you wait till the... It's for the podcast, that's why. Oh, thanks. Um, my question is, I really thought this was a really interesting topic. And then when I saw who was being invited, I noticed all four of you are working at a university. And actually, I thought with this topic, it would have been brilliant to invite people who work in philosophy with children, philosophical therapy, etc. So I wonder what you think about that. And just as a challenge, if you can answer this question without referring to a single philosopher. Thank you. As I said, you know, I, I was at the Badu station <laughs> during uh, 12 years, so uh, I just want, I don't want to talk only as a scholar. You know, and uh, I think that's, of course, we, we speak here as representatives of philosophy at the university, but I think that 
thinking in public means that uh, we used to also to, 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 to practice philosophy outside university. And uh, that means that I'm just speaking for myself, but uh, uh, I, I know some, some groups, as I say, you know, some, I, I attend some uh, group in, uh, in a psychiatric hospital in prison too. I, I, I made some, some workshop in prison, so... <laughs> <laughs> Any other? Well, I mean, I mean, there's an expertise. I mean, you can't <laughs> um, do without it, and uh, and there's the effort to really um, go out and and um, try to find a, a way or language which is more accessible, but. Um, um, I mean, there's this tension. I mean, François made the distinction between practice and knowledge. And I think the two are inseparable. I mean, um, the practice I have is the reading of the great philosophers. And I couldn't live without that. I mean, I was so happy to go back to Spinoza for the tonight. I was going to, to, to quote Spinoza, but I didn't. And uh, I was so happy to go back to Descartes. So I wish you were happy to go back to Descartes too and we could <laughs> exchange on that because, I mean, that's one of the joys of being a philosopher. I mean, uh, to be able to, um, you know, engage with uh, this thinker the way you are happy when you read a great novel, I mean, or listen to music. It's the same experience, I mean. So... Um, I agree. I mean, we should have invited. We, we did. We did um, a, a few years ago. We had a session on philosophy and children philosophy in school, and it was a big success. We could have done that today, but sorry. I mean. <laughs> okay, and I think we have run out of time. I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking our speaker.